If you were to visit the British Museum today, the longest line would be to view a large carved stone. This stone that has become the most popular exhibit was uncovered in 1799 in the Nile Delta near the town of Rosetta in Egypt. It was inscribed with three versions of a decree. These inscriptions were dated to 196 years before the time of Christ, written in ancient Egyptian hieroglyphic as well as a cursive form of ancient Egyptian hieroglyphics, and at the bottom it was also written in ancient Greek. This incredible discovery of a multilingual text allowed modern scholars to decipher ancient Egyptian inscriptions for the first time. The Rosetta Stone, as it had come to be known, was the key to unlock a door that brought understanding and insight into what was previously just unknown or inaccessible. Sometimes we need a key, we need a Rosetta Stone, to help us unlock what we currently don't understand. Jesus is like a divine Rosetta Stone. He came to show us what God is like, and he came to tell us stories to help us imagine the beautifully unimaginable. John's Gospel even begins by calling Jesus the Word of God, so Jesus becomes the translation into humankind of the divine mystery. His life, his mission, his message, and is everything God wants to say to us. And Jesus is the divine Rosetta Stone. His creative storytelling allowed us to think in new ways about important ideas, about God, about life, about the human heart, about each other. And he asked us to consider the incomprehensible using simple, everyday objects and concepts that we already know and that we use in everyday life. So his stories, these parables become a kind of rubric for us, a Rosetta Stone, bridging the gap between the incomprehensible and for those hungry, divine truth. Jesus' stories about bread and yeast, about lost sheep, about found pearls. These are the things of life. And these are the stories that stop us long enough to wonder what they're saying about God and maybe what they're saying about me. The first parable Jesus tells in the book of Mark, which is the oldest gospel, seems to be a key to unlocking all the other ones, at least according to Jesus. Mark records it this way in chapter 4. He says that Jesus went back to teaching by the sea, and a crowd built up to such a great size that he had to get into a boat offshore. Using the boat as a stage because people were pushed to the water's edge, he taught by using stories, many stories. Listen, he said, what do you make of this? A farmer plants a seed, and he scatters the seed. Some of it falls on the road, and the birds will eat it. Some falls in the gravel, and it sprouts up quickly, but it doesn't put down roots. And so when the sun comes out, it will wither just as quickly. Some fell on the weeds, and as it came up, it was choked, and nothing came of it. Some fell on good earth, and as it came up with a flourish, producing a harvest, exceeding its wildest dreams. Are you listening? Really listening? When they were off by themselves, those who were close to him, along with the twelve, asked about these stories. And Jesus told them, You've been given insight into God's kingdom. You know how it works. But to those who can't see it yet, everything comes in stories, creating readiness, nudging them towards receptive insight. These people, and Jesus quotes from Isaiah chapter 6 here, whose eyes are open but they don't see a thing, whose ears are open but they don't understand a word, who avoid making an about face and being forgiven. He continues, Do you see how this story works? 
All my stories work this way, Jesus says. The farmer plants the seed, the word. Some people are like the seed that falls in the hardened soil of the road. No sooner do they hear it than the enemy snatches it away and that what has been planted in them. And some are like the seed that lands in the gravel. When they first hear the word, they respond with great enthusiasm, but they are such shallow soil of character that when the emotions wear off and some difficulty arrives, there's nothing to show for it. The seed cast in the weeds represents the ones who hear the kingdom news but are overwhelmed with worries about all the things that they have to do and all the things they want to get. The stress strangles what they heard and nothing comes of it. But the good seed planted in the good earth represents those who hear the word, embrace it, and produce a harvest beyond their wildest dreams. This seems like a simple story about spiritual growth. A farmer sows his seed. Four soil types receive these seeds. A busy path, frequented by predators, ready to steal away the scattered meal. Seeds also get scattered on the rocky soil where depth is not an option. Then there's the weedy parts that allow some growth but choke out and stunt any chance for harvest. And lastly, the fertile soil, rich and ready to receive and support a crop many times what was planted. Simple. My heart was one of the soils. The truth was the seed. I always found it interesting that the disciples needed this parable explained. Like, really? How dumb are they? Well... My arrogance reveals my own ignorance. When we read this passage from Mark's account, it turns out that I too have not understood this parable. It is, is it possibly that we're missing an important element to this story, and possibly in all of Jesus' stories? In Mark's telling, Jesus doesn't say we're the soil. The soil seems to represent our lives in the moment we are confronted with a truth that desires to grow into something and produce fruit, a truth that desires to mature us. Now, this complicates my understanding of the story. Many things are still the same, that God's truth in whatever form it may take is presented in my life and yours and desires to grow. And as it grows, whether or not it's able to mature and bear fruit depends so much on the environment it's growing in. We cannot say God's not trying to speak to us, to communicate to us. The seeds of divine truth seem to be scattered generously throughout our lives. The challenge is how we are responding to these moments of truth. The busy places of life so easily rob us of the life-changing truth that we so desperately hunger for, but often require contemplation and silence for us to recognize. The rocky times of our lives, hindering opportunity, it seems, for any deep relationships and the deception of more success, of greed, choke out simple ideas of contentment and peace. Too many read this story and think that we will hear God's voice when life comes down a bit, when our rocky, weedy lives are perfectly manicured and chocolate brown, ready, organized, receptive. But the soils seem to represent our choices, not necessarily our environments or our circumstances. After all, it's our response to our circumstances, not just the circumstances alone, that determine how our life moves forward. In this parable, The seeds of God's wisdom and truth are scattered on all the soils. So we'd be wrong to wish for better soil because, you know, before we start listening, perhaps if the soils represent our response to God's voice, then we have more agency, more control than we actually know. 
Growing up on a farm, I participated in the process of, process of prepping a field, plowing it first, and then you disc it, and then you run your harrow to pull out the weeds, and then you get paid 50 cents an hour to pick rocks. Growing up on that farm and participating in growing crops, it exposed me to not only the work of growing, but the miracle of harvest. To make soil ready to grow, the farmer cuts through the first soil that Jesus describes, the hard soil that was only a pathway for rabbits and deer and, and dinner plate for the birds. Then they cut through the second soil. Jesus describes that they take out the rocks and remanufacture the landscape. They cut through the third soil and they'll rake and harrow all the weeds and turn them into mulch. The plow does this by cutting through the faded landscape like knives through the soil, leaving the dark chocolate-rich earth below. It's flipped completely upside down. It is the redistribution of nutrients. But it is such a devastating process. But it provides the richest opportunity for growth. Now, I don't like this, because I know what Jesus is getting at, and it's uncomfortable. This isn't a spiritual truth forced upon creation. This seems to be one of those amazing redemptive observations deep in the rhythms of the creative world. Things that die and are let go can help produce a rich harvest in due time. In fact, their decay can provide the nutrients for new life. This parable helps me understand why there are times when I am more productive and times where there seems to be little fruit with not much of anything that can feed me nor others. And yet, times when even the littlest truth can produce a crop from my life. I have come to discover that sometimes it isn't that my heart isn't trying to process and grow, but the landscape I find myself in is hardened and difficult and full of distractions. And that determines my response. Does this parable remind me to recognize the tough times, the times in my life that need to be flipped upside down and that there is decay of dying dreams and relationships and ideas, this might be the destructive redeeming qualities of the farmer rescuing the soil. This kind of explains why some people struggle to change their ways or their destructive thinking because disruption is required to make our lives receptive. The way to grow something in a hardened soil is to dig deep to flip it upside down, to deal with the rocks, to slowly, painstakingly remove the weeds. Cultivated soil is work. We try to get through life with as little pain as possible, so we harden our hearts. It's protection. But that's going to require some digging later if we want to life, if we want to live. Sometimes the work is done externally. Disasters we didn't ask for, disruptions we didn't plan. Some of the greatest natural disasters have actually remanufactured the infertile land into a landscape that can produce a crop. And this is how some people can come out the other side of a catastrophe better for it. They've somehow allowed the work. We can also prepare soil to produce unnaturally. We seem to get away with it for a time, you know, artificial fertilizers, etc., the metaphor isn't lost. We have those that think that we stimulate health and growth, um, but in the end, we don't get dirty. But the truth is, there's no quick fix without compromising quality. I think some people try and 
be hydroponic, right? They want to live their life without any dirt. They want all the fruit of a good life, but no muck. They want growth without getting their hands dirty. But there's no such thing as hydroponic spirituality. So I wonder if this parable can be understood as encouragement. Barbara Brown Taylor, um, an author, Christian author, reads this parable as being about God, not about us. She says, after all, for centuries, the parable was known as the parable of the sower, not the parable of the seed. It's about he who throws the seed. God continues to cast and sow truth regardless of whether people receive or are receptive to it. For Barbara, this story is about the loving nature of the one who never gives up, reaching into the seed bag and casts it out for all eternity, knowing that one day it will produce a harvest. Wow, I like that. I can see her perspective too. But for me, I read this story, I hear this story from where I am. The farmer does scatter the truth in abundance, but it seems that often the soil that appears the most worked over is the soil that can receive it, that can germinate it. Not the busy landscape, nor the easily distracted one, nor the shallow. It is the lives of those who have been worked over, who've experienced failure and rejection, that have the most incredible potential to bear fruit. If I had the ability to take all of us, all you listening, with me on a little field trip, I would put you all in my van, and I would drive you down to Indigo Books. And when we would go into this, this bookstore, this huge bookstore, and we would find one of the largest sections, biography. And I would stand us in a line, and I'd get you to stare at the faces looking back at you from those shelves. And I'd pull out a $100 bill, and I would offer it to the first person who could find a biography that doesn't include suffering or disruption of some sort. And I'd wait an hour, and I'd end up buying you all coffee on the way back home because I still have my money. Because the truth is, all of those books are filled with disruption. That's why we want to read them. That's why it's one of the most popular sections in the bookstore. Because we want to read these stories of people who've overcome, people who've found a truth somehow, somewhere, that has produced some sort of harvest. Disruptions afford change, but it doesn't demand it. Some authors have proposed that in the first century, Palestinian farmers would scatter the seed and then plow it. And in turning over the soil, it would bury the seed deep along with the mulch decaying vegetation. It's an interesting way to think about the story. It might help me understand why there are times that I seem more receptive than others. It's usually directly related to my life, the soil I'm standing on. We easily become the soil we're standing on. We think and respond in the space we occupy. I've come to observe in my own life that often the sweetest success comes after some form of failure. In fact, it's fertilized and grows better because of it. But I had to stand in it. Mark Buchanan writes, Think of a moment, of all the the moments, of all the events and encounters that have shaped you most deeply and lastingly. How many did you see coming? How many did you engineer, manufacture, or chase down? You see, a truth that I've come to own 
is that while I have more to give when I'm not broken, the stuff I give when I'm not is the stuff I learned when I was. Success before failure is just that. Success before failure. Think of who Jesus chose to be his disciples. Those who had experienced rejection and failure, the life Jesus called them to would cut through their hardened lives and flip everything upside down, a life of humility, forgiveness, compassion, and hope, and in doing so, redistribute pain so that it can be redeemed and feed future growth. You see, the early church was not just a place meant for the redistribution of resources, of love, and of hope. It was meant to be a place where together we also redistribute pain and sorrow, failure and disappointment. We're meant to carry these things together. I find it interesting that the seeds grow in this story in the rich soil and produce a harvest 30, 60, even 100 times what was planted, Jesus says. This abundance can only be for the redistribution for those who aren't producing any. The farmer's harvest wasn't so that he could store it all in a barn for himself. It was for the care of those who are becoming the soil they're standing in. This is where our friendships and our communities are so important because the plow always comes. This is life. And in those times when we've forgotten how much work life really is, we will be thankful for those who've experienced the plow before us so they can not only remind us of the potential for harvest, but maybe help us pick out the rocks, pull out the weeds, steer the plow, and if nothing more, open up their barn so we can eat.